Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you have given us grace to be in this place today. We pray, Father, that we might um, open ourselves, open our hearts, open our minds, Lord God, to the work that you want to do in us, to the transformation, to the renewing of our minds, so that our bodies, so that all that we are might be given over to your service, to your worship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to, if, if you'll allow me today, um, I want to uh, kind of uh, reorient the way that we think about one of our beloved children's, you know those like Old Testament children's stories? Um, Emmaus turned to me, Rosalie, when you were reading, and he said, Dad, she didn't talk about how they were hiding. And God came and talked to them. <laughs> I said, yes, yes, that's good. I'm glad you remember that story and that part of it. But, um, but it's true. We kind of have our idea um, of the Garden of Eden. We have our idea of Noah's Ark. We have our idea um, of a couple of those beloved Old Testament stories. Um, and they're good ideas. We should have those ideas. But they're not always complete. And so... Um, one of the ways that I want to complicate things for you today, um, in a good way, uh, I want us to rethink about Eden. Rethink about what it is that is happening in Eden. Um, I don't know if it was news to me, but uh, it certainly wasn't on the surface of my consciousness. Somebody pointed out to me recently that Eden is not what I always tended to think of it as. Uh, you know, we say the Garden of Eden, and we don't mean the Vegetable Garden of Eden, right? It's not, I don't, I don't really think of the Garden of Eden as sitting there with rows and, and, um, and all that kind of thing. We tend to think of it as a kind of walled garden, right? Sort of like an English garden with nice paths walking through it and topiary that's carved into the shape of, you know, I don't know, giraffes or something. Uh, <laughs> Something silly. Um, but what does scripture actually say about Eden? Well, it says a couple surprising things when you look closely. Um, it tells us, first off, that God planted this garden, right? So if we get at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, the very first part of Genesis 2 is actually day 7 um, of the, the first account of creation, and then we get this sort of uh, rehash of the story. 
Um, and it tells us that God planted the garden. And then it tells us that God created humanity, created the man, created Adam, which is both Adam's first name and the Hebrew word for humanity. So it gets a little confusing. Um, he created him, gathered up some dirt, formed a man, breathed life into him, right, into his nostrils. And then he picked him up and he put him in the garden. Adam was not created in the Garden of Eden. He's created in the wilderness. Which means that the world that God created was not initially all paradise. The world that God created had wilderness to it. Okay? There was work still to be done for the people of God. When God tells Adam, we'll come back to this later, but when he tells him to till and to keep the garden, there's an intention in that till and keep on some level to expand the Garden of Eden until it covers all the earth. That Adam and Eve, that the original humanity was to be a part of God's stewardship of all of creation. But God begins with this sort of holy set-apart place. So we know that Eden is not, that all the world is not paradise, right? Some of it is wilderness. It's not bad, it's just wilderness, okay? We also know that there's a wall around it. There's some sort of boundary around it. How do we know that? Because God kicks Adam and Eve out. <laughs> he sets an angel at the gate. And he sets an angel at the gate with a sword to keep them out later, right? So there's some sort of boundary around the garden. What else do we know? If you read Genesis 2 kind of closely, we know that there are rivers that start in the Garden of Eden. In fact, there's one big river that comes out of it and then splits into four. And those four rivers would have watered as they saw it, the whole earth. The whole earth. Now, where do rivers start? Where are headwaters? The end waters are in the ocean. The headwaters are in the mountains. Rivers start in mountains. The American River, the Sacramento River, Stock, is Stockton a river? Do they have a river? No, there's all those other rivers. <laughs> okay? They all start up in the Sierra and they flow down to the ocean. But they start where the rain and the snow falls. Remember last week, the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus takes his disciples and says, up a high mountain, and at the top of those mountains, he is transfigured. And we talked a little bit about that mountain, and not only that mountain, but all the other mountains in Scripture where God shows up. That God, when he comes in his kind of fullness, when he walks and talks and is present to his people, it's often, it's typically at the top of a mountain. Whether that's Mount Sinai, where he meets Moses and where later he gives Israel the law, whether that is Mount Horeb or Mount Moriah or Mount Carmel. We know from the end, Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, that even the new Jerusalem will be on a high mountain 
In fact, the old Jerusalem is on a mountain. Mount Zion is the mountain at which God meets his people and where he puts his temple. And it's, it's where the Holy of Holies, where God comes to meet in his most thick available presence is. It's on the top of Mount Zion. So what does that tell you maybe about Eden? Eden was not just a walled-off garden. It was also a mountain. This is how the Old Testament writers saw it. If you look at Ezekiel 28, there's actually the line. Is Eden is a high mountain. <laughs> Let me read it so you know I'm not tricking you. Okay. I don't know how much credibility I've built here over the years, and I don't want to... I don't want to risk it. <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. Ezekiel 28. The second half of the chapter. There we go, 14. You were, anointed guard, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you are on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. If you read that whole portion of the chapter, you'll see. If you go back to verse 13, you see he's talking about, um, about Eden, the garden of God. So what, what is it that's going on in Eden we have this picture, we have this sign of God's presence with people. The ancients understood gods to live on mountains. They understood them to live in gardens, places where there was lots of water, lots of food. That's exactly what Eden is, right? It's got every kind of tree that's good for food. It's got every kind of herb that's good for food. And the mountain is not so much about geography as it is about this is the place where God comes and is with his people. In chapter 2, again, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, right? It's like he was right there with them in their presence, looking them in the eye, so to speak. And then, But Eden is not just a mountain. Eden is also a temple. And here's where my brain breaks a little bit because I didn't grow up with all this, right? How was the temple that God gave to his people in Exodus and Leviticus, how is it laid out? Well, there's, there's sections, there's areas, and there's places that you can go. So on the very outside, there's the court of the Gentiles. And anybody can come in and kind of see what's going on in the court of the Gentiles, right? Gentiles can come in, Jews can come in. But then you go, there's like a next layer. There's a next level that you got to be a Jew if you're going to be part of God's chosen people if you're going to enter into this next level. And then you can kind of do another sort of version of worship once you get into that they called it the court of the women i'm sorry because the men were the ones who went in the next level right so that was kind of the court of the women and then there was this next level and you kept moving in closer and closer and with every level you got closer to the presence of god and at the very center was the holy of holies 
And the Holy of Holies was a cube. It was a perfect cube that was equal, a three-dimensional square, equal on every side. And in that three-dimensional cube, we know sat the Ark of the Covenant. But right on the outside of that, remember, this is a place that only one person went one day a year, the high priest. So not even everyday priest, but you got to be the high priest who's chosen for this task. And you go into this room one day a year to make atonement for the whole people of Israel. And when you do, they tie a rope around your ankle in case you're not holy enough and God's holiness kills you. They don't want to have to, you know, how else are they going to get you? They got to like drag you out with a rope. Okay, so you see how this starts to work. There are are levels of intensifying holiness. Well, again, think about the Garden of Eden, which just like Sinai has a boundary around the side of it. But what's at the top of the mountain? In the middle of the mountain. Those trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what is right at the center of the temple, right at the entrance into the Holy of Holies? An image of a tree. This way of saying that God is here to deliver life. God is here to bring the fruits of life, right at the center of where we worship, that God's purpose here among us and the purpose of our worship of him is not simply to escape punishment. It's not just that we kind of get clean enough that God's not going to lash out and kill us, but it's actually so that we might enjoy the fruits of all life. And in the temple at the center of that space was the law. In that Ark of the Covenant, in that very place where God's presence sat, were the tablets of the law that Moses received. As a reminder, as a way of saying that if you follow this law, there is life in it. Go read Psalm 119. We think of the law as death. They did not. Jesus did not. The law is and was a source of life because it's the words of God. And if we want to come close to God, we follow the words of God. And right there at the center of Eden is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And which tree are the, are the people, Adam and Eve, which tree are they not allowed to eat from? Good and evil. Are they welcome to eat from the tree of life? Yes. From the information we have, yes. They're welcome to that tree. They're welcome into the intimacy and the friendship and the presence of God, but they're not to reach out and take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a lot of people have said, some people have said that God wanted to keep them naive, right? God wants them to not really know very much. He doesn't want them to know good from evil. He just wants, he wanted them to kind of be simple. And so really it was this act, this great act of moral courage to reach out and take the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But I want to reframe that because what is it that Adam and Eve are doing in the garden? They're the image of God. They are stewarding. They are going between God's 
thick, real, intimate, walk with them in the cool of the day, look them in the eye, know their name kind of presence, and all of creation. Adam and Eve are priests. They're priests. They're ministers whose job it is to be the image of God to all of creation. They're in this garden temple mountain that God has set up. And the purpose is to help all of creation see and know the Lord who created and loves them. And ultimately, the purpose is that, you know, they should be fruitful and multiply, that they should have kids and babies, and that they should fill the earth, and that all of the earth should know that goodness. But for now, we're just starting with Eden. God wants that goodness and that grace to flow out all over his creation. But he's going to start here. But what do they do? I mean, this is the story. This is the fall. This is the tragedy, and it's what we are complicit in. It's what we participate in every day. It's what you and I do unintentionally and intentionally when we sin. When we decide, no, I'm not going to go after the thing that God has created for me. Instead, I'm going to follow my own way. Instead, I'm going to develop my own path. I'm going to reach out and grasp and take for myself this thing that God has actually promised to me if I would be willing to receive it rather than to take it. We know that God loves his creation. We know that God loves Adam, that God loves Eve, that God loves everything that he had made. He says that he looked out and he saw that it was good. In fact, he saw that it was very good. God's purpose and heart is not to destroy or to condemn, but to redeem and to save. And so Adam and Eve, right when they are in the midst of the garden, right at the center, and, and here's my point. This was not a God did not just set up a random rule and say, don't break that rule. Right? It's not just something that's sort of out there and he's just going to test them and see what they'll do with it. These trees are actually the very thing that they are created to do, not, not to take their own knowledge of good and evil, but to receive it from God. He'd be able to steward that for all creation. So when Adam and Eve reach out and take from that tree, they betray their very purpose. When they reach out and grasp the fruit of that tree, they betray the very thing they're created for. And it breaks the heart of God. It breaks that relationship between humanity and and the creator. And again, I wonder how often we do this every day. Well, yeah, God kind of has his purposes. Yeah, God wants something for my life. Yeah, we want to see 
God move in our neighborhoods and we want to see God moves in our cities and in our families. But I don't really see what God's doing, so I'm just going to go do what I want to do myself. I'll reach out and grasp it and take it for myself. I'll reach out and grasp my own goals and my own purposes for myself. I'll define myself by who I am in my family or who I am in my country or who I am at my job or who I am in relationship to somebody else across the street. But it all becomes about me establishing myself in this world. It all becomes about me reaching out and taking what I need to reach out and take in this world. Rather than recognizing that what God has given to me, the good life that God has created me to live, is something that I don't reach out and take, but it's something rather that I receive with open hands. It's something that God gives because he's gracious and kind and wants to give it. We talked about in Sunday school, we defined three words. <laughs> we started with the word sin, right? And we had all kinds of, you know, there's disobedience and um, the, 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 the definition that we kind of landed on is a, a, and I know, again, it's kind of a lifeless, cold definition, but it's a, a voluntary transgression of a known law of God by a morally responsible agent or person. Okay? It means you know what you're doing and you do it anyway. It's something you actually are aware of and you're somebody who has the ability to make that decision. And when, so you transgress a law, you disobey God in a way that you know you should not disobey. Okay? Um, and that's that's fine. That's a fine definition of sin, I guess. <laughs> it's what the book tells me, <laughs> right? Um, but then we talked about freedom, and we wanted to find freedom. And the thing that always gets me, we, uh, I think it was James brought up the, the baseball player Willie Mays. And we said, put me in a time machine, or I guess put him in a time machine, and put, put me and Willie Mays on the same baseball field. And Willie Mays is a lot more free than I am, right? Because he's put in the practice, and he has the gifts, and he has the talents. And it doesn't matter how hard I try on any major league baseball field. It doesn't matter how hard I swing the bat. It doesn't matter how fast I try to run. It doesn't matter my determination. I don't have the practice, and I don't have the gifts to do what I want to do on a baseball field. So I'm not free. I'm not free to do what it is that I want to do because I haven't actually practiced and lived up to a baseball player's life. What am I saying? I'm saying that we've got to practice what it is to be free in Christ. We don't simply, freedom is not just about tearing down walls and tearing down constraints and getting a million dollars that you can do anything you want with it. Because what we want with our freedom is not simply to do what we want, but to be who Christ is. What we are looking for is that we would be more Christ-like, and the more we become like Christ, the more free we are. Because freedom really is, is it possible for you to not choose 
those things which are evil. When I'm free, I'm free to choose those things which are good in this world. But when I've got sin and it still has its hooks deep in me, when I'm still chained by that choice to reach out and take rather than to receive from God, when I've still got my legs all bound up and my arms all bound up, I'm no longer free, even if I can do what I want. Why? Because my desires are the things that enslave me in the first place. My desires are the things that rot me from the center out in the first place. My desires need to be redeemed. Need to be redeemed. All right. So Adam and Eve are on this temple mountain in the presence of God. And they reach out at some moment and they take something for themselves that is not theirs to take. And what's the result? Well, I mean, first off, and this is the freedom thing. You notice what they do? Ah! <laughs> I'm naked. <laughs> Let me cover myself up. And what do they cover themselves with? Fig leaves. Terrible clothing. Terrible. Right? You don't want to cover yourself with fig leaves. They fall apart. They get old. They crack. They dry. They're... I mean, I've never worn fig leaves. I'm assuming, I'm assuming the fig leaves are itchy, okay? All right. <laughs> and, and here's my point. You see, Adam and Eve, in their rebellion, try to fix the problem, but they can't fix the problem. That's what human freedom does. When we are free in ourselves to try to fix our problem, we simply make it worse. We make our nakedness more evident by our attempts to cover up our shame. We become more embarrassing as we try to get rid of our embarrassment. It's only God who actually covers their shame in an act of grace at the end of the story. right? But what is it that happens? They get kicked out of the garden. They get kicked out of that place of God's presence and they go back to where they were created, back out into the wilderness, back out into the place where work is hard, into the place where child labor is painful sometimes fatal. They go into the place of difficulty. And this is where we come to our gospel today. Because where is it that Jesus goes? Yeah, we talk about he goes through the water just like he goes to the Red Sea, and then he's 40 days in the wilderness, just like Israel's 40 days in the wilderness on their way, 40 years in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Yes, that's all there. But also, just as Adam and Eve, out of their rebellion, are pushed into the place of aridness and dryness and difficulty and emptiness. So Jesus himself enters into that exact space. Only, of course, Jesus redeemed. He does it without sin. He faces Satan. He faces the tempter. He makes it possible for us to go into the wilderness so that we might be saved. Friends, the only way, the only way out of our sin, the only way for us to become free again, the only way out of the slavery of these chains 
that wrap around and hold and bind and just bind tighter the more you struggle against them. The only way out of all of that is to go into the wilderness. It's to enter with Christ into the desert places. To let God redeem that difficulty. I'm going to do something I probably shouldn't do, but it's too good of a, it's there in scripture and it's too good. Okay. So there's three mountains I want you to think about. Eden, the mountain of the new Jerusalem at the end of Revelation, and Calvary. Three mountains, God's presence, but also three trees. Tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Revelation, the tree that straddles the river that comes from the throne of God and bears 12 kinds of fruit for all of the people of God to eat and to live off of, that they would have eternal life from the fruit that grows and falls down from this tree. But what is the tree that gets us from the Garden of Eden and the broken tree of the knowledge of good and evil into the tree of the fullness that comes in the New Jerusalem? It's the tree of the cross. It's the tree of the cross. The tree that was outside the gates of Jerusalem in the same way that Adam and Eve were kicked outside of the gates. But it's only by going through that tree that we're able to come back into the gates that God is working to build and establish and to bring through his son. But if we're going to do that, we've got to eat of the tree of the cross. We have to come to those fruits. have to eat the tree of Christ of his body and of his blood and it's what Jesus says in John 6 I bought the bread of life this bread is my flesh and unless you eat of this bread you don't have life And it's a hard thing for me to hear. Just as it was hard for Jesus' disciples to hear. And many of them left him. But we, like Peter, say in that moment when he, Jesus turns to us and asks, are you going to leave too? Peter says, where else would we go? We've tried everything else. I mean, look around this room. We've tried drugs. We've tried sex. We've tried success. We've tried having enough friends that you can be happy. And all of us know that there is no life in those things, that there is only life in Christ. So I want to invite you to come to the table today knowing that as you eat of this bread, as you drink of this cup, that you too will be broken. That you too will be at a place where you experience the wilderness. But know also that Christ is in that wilderness along with you, redeeming it, making it, 
not a sign of your death, but a sign of the life that is to come. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I'm humbled. I'm humbled by you and by the life and the work that you've called me to. I pray, Lord God, that we as your people would embrace this meal this morning. That we would open our hands not to grab and to grasp, but rather, even as your son Jesus did, Lord, to receive. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he was willing to become obedient. 